This is uh, Dr. Peter Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And uh, today I have the great pleasure of uh, inviting to the podcast the authors, the first author and uh, senior author of the IRTA uh, study, Open versus Minimally Invasive Radical Trichelectomy in Early Stage Cervical Cancer, an International Radical Trichelectomy Assessment Study. So I want to welcome Dr. Gloria Salvo, who is in the Department of Gynecologic Oncology and Reproductive Medicine at MD Anderson Cancer Center, and Dr. René Pareja, who is at the Astorga Oncology Clinic in Medellín, and also at the National Cancer Institute in Bogota, Colombia. So welcome to you uh, both, René and Gloria. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Peter, for inviting us. Well, absolutely. It's a great pleasure uh, uh, having you both on this uh, on this podcast, and obviously, and and highly anticipated uh, podcast. Uh, there was uh, there was a lot of anticipation as to the results of this study. Obviously, comparing open versus minimally invasive radical trichelectomy for patients with uh, early cervical cancer. Um, we have a lot of questions, and uh, hopefully, we'll be able to get through all of these questions. Um, so I'm going to start with you, Renee. Uh, obviously, radical trichelectomy is performed in very uh, select centers, primarily, and, and data has shown us that minimally invasive surgery became the dominant approach for this procedure uh, since 2011 in the United States. Um, so obviously, you know, publications so far have been from very small series suggesting that the oncologic outcomes were similar to radical hysterectomy. So in this manuscript that you published in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, you go a step further and you compare open versus minimally invasive radical trichelectomy. So first I wanted to ask, what was the reason for doing this study? Uh, thank you, Pedro, for the, for the questions. The, the reason undoubtedly was the unexpected outcome of lac trial. After the presentation at the SGO plenary session in New Orleans in 2018, questions began to arise about possible explanation for the results. And of course, a mandatory question was if the same worst oncological outcome could occur with the many invasive radical trachelectomy compared with the abdominal approach. That was the origin of this study. Great. And, um, and before we get into the, the details of the study, I wanted to ask Gloria, uh, because I know this study was quite a huge effort. And, and again, credit to you both uh, for putting together uh, data from so many institutions. So, Gloria, I wanted to ask you, can you tell us a little bit about the process of how you gathered the data and what type of quality control do you implement for this data, particularly coming from so many institutions? Well, first, thank you for the compliment. And yes, it was a huge effort. 18 centers in 12 countries participated in the study. So it was a huge effort from everyone that participated in it. So we had uh, an online, a REDCAP database maintained at MD Anderson. Each institution was granted access to this database and they entered their own data. Once each institution uh, completed the data entrance, we requested uh, the source document of 10% of the patients that were entered per site. And additional to those, that 10%, we requested the source document every time there were missing values or some values that didn't make uh, complete sense. 
so that's how we we have already the quality of the data that was entered. Um, so, again, credit to, to you both for putting and implementing this. Uh, many uh, registry studies don't go the extra step of getting the additional source data and, and checking on, on all of those important points. So, back to you, Renee. Um, what was the primary aim of this study? Pedro, we aim to compare 4.5-year disease-free survival after open versus minimal invasive radical tracheotomy. And we choose the, this, this number uh, in order to have some similar to the data published by Lactrial. And, and who was eligible for, for the study? And also similarly, who, who did you exclude in this study? Okay, uh, among the inclusive criteria, uh, the patients who have a squamous carcinoma, adenocarcinoma or adenosquamous carcinoma, had a preoperative tumor size of less than two centimeters determined by physical examination, imaging, or pathology assessment, and underwent radical trachelectomy with nodal assessment, pelvic lymphatenectomy, and or sentinel lymph node biopsy during 2005 and 2017. The, the exclusion criteria were the use of neoadjuvant chemotherapy or preoperative pelvic radiotherapy, previous lymphadenectomy, previous lymphadenectomy or pelvic retroperitoneal surgery, pregnant patients, stage 1A1 disease with lymphovascular space invasion, or trachelectomy converted to radical hysterectomy and vaginal approach. So now I'd like to go back to Gloria and ask you um, the results of the study, and there are a number of questions that we need to address. Uh, so obviously I just wanted to start first by asking you how many patients underwent open versus minimally invasive surgery? And then also, what was the median patient age, uh, the rate of positive lymph nodes, and the follow-up time in each group? So 715 patients were entered into the database, and 69 were excluded, uh, leaving 646 uh, patients in the final analysis. 358 patients underwent open and 288 underwent minimal invasive surgery. Of those, 121 underwent laparoscopic and 167 underwent robotic surgery. Regarding the patient's age, the median uh, patient's age was 32 years uh, for the open and 31 uh, years in the minimal invasive group. And the rate of pelvic uh, nodal involvement was 5.3% in the open and 4.9% in the minimal invasive group. Both age and nodal involvement was not significant. It was similar in both groups. And you ask about the follow-up time. And follow-up time was 5.5 years for the open. Uh, with a range of 0.20 to 16.7 and 3.1 years uh, for the minimally invasive group. And the range was, again, 0.02 um, to 11.1 years. And this was significantly, uh, statistically significant difference between yeah. both groups. 
Yeah, de definitely. The the, the follow-up time is something that uh, I think that we'll get into a little bit later in the in the discussion. And I wanted to ask you also, was there a difference between the groups, the open versus minimally invasive, in terms of stage distribution and tumor size? Well, regarding stage distribution, no, there was no difference. With 85% of all patients entering in the study having a stage 1B1. Um, if we talk about pre-op tumor size, there was no difference. 62% in the open and 59% in the minimally invasive group having tumors that measured 1 to 2 centimeter and 27% in the open and 36% in the minimally invasive having tumors less than 1 centimeter. But there was a, different, a difference in the post-operative tumor size in the final specimen uh, pathology report with 61% of patients in the open and 42% having tumors in measuring one to two centimeters. Great. So one of the questions that, uh, that comes in now from our fellows in the International Journal, this one is from uh, Eric Estrada in Guatemala. He asks, almost 23% of data regarding tumor size is missing in the MIS group compared to 12% in the open group. This is a well-known factor that impacts prognosis. So similarly, there was missing information on the death of invasion in 50% of the open group and 17% of patients in the minimally invasive group. Now, his question is, do you consider this could have impacted your results? Thank you, Eric. <laughs> uh, well, this is a retrospective study. So missing data, it's something expected and something we to deal with, right? So um, we did a great effort requesting more, as I said before, additional source documents um, to find those missing values if for some reason were missed when entering data, but still we came up to these percentages, right? So um, uh, regarding how missing values were handled in the statistical analysis, well, missing data was in were ignored when completing the analysis. Uh, but the impact upon the primary analysis was minimal due to low number of missings. And it's important to mention that all patients have information regarding survival endpoints. Uh, so furthermore, when examining, examining recurrences, adjusting for propensity scores, only 5%, three out of 646 patients have missing data when calculating these propensity scores. So therefore, like bias due to case-wise deletion should be minimal. Um, so I cannot say exactly how this could have impact uh, the results. Of course, these are two important values, but for the main uh, primary endpoint, this, this impact uh, is definitely minimal. Okay. So now, Renee, I wanted to ask you, um, obviously, one of the other issues that comes up and, and often, you know, and particularly, obviously, uh, with regards to the extent of the procedure itself, but just on, on the basis of this study, what about the rate of residual disease in the final specimen? Uh, did you see a difference in between the groups? Yes, Pedro. Uh, residual disease was present in the final specimen in 204 patients, 57% with open surgery and 118 patients, uh, equivalent to 
with uh, with patients undergoing minimal invasive surgery, and this difference was statistically significant. But uh, there is some additional information that will be discussed later related with previous colonization and its effect in residual disease rates. Yeah, definitely we want to talk about uh, colonizations as well and. And, uh, and we'll get to that in a, in a few minutes. Um, now, the disease-free interval is, is as short as three months in some patients in both groups. Um, Emma Allison uh, from Australia asked, do you have any data on the extent of clearance, margin status in these patients who had residual disease? Pedro, we know that is a very short period of time for having a relapse, but unfortunately, we haven't collected uh, such information. Okay. Um, and Gloria, I wanted to ask you, with multiple variables um, showing significant difference, uh, particularly uh, Sarah Nasser uh, points to table two between the two groups. So histology, tumor size, grade, uh, adjuvant treatment, follow-up time. Uh, should a multivariate analysis have been performed to address the possible confounding factors? Uh, Sarah, uh, definitely this was um, something we wanted to do, we tried, but given the low number of events, uh, we were unable to complete a multivariate uh, proportional hazard model for disease-free survival and overall survival. Okay, so obviously low low uh, numbers of, of patients and yeah of events I should say exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, and what about the rate of adjuvant treatment? Um, obviously, that's another question that does come up when you're comparing open versus minimally invasive. Did you see a difference between the two groups? Yes, there was a difference. The rate of adjuvant uh, treatment in the open um, and MIS was different, was 13 in the open, 13% and 5% respectively. Um, and adjuvant treatment, of course, this is a retrospective study, so adjuvant uh, therapy was at discretion of the treating physician. Um, and most likely to be in accordance with the risk factors that you just mentioned in the previous question. If you look at table two, there are some differences between both groups open and minimal invasive as regards to residual disease, to histology, tumor size, and the pathology, and grade, and et cetera. So most likely the adjuvant therapy was related to this. And yes, it showed a difference. Uh, the odds of adjuvant therapy did not differ by tumor size. We did this analysis, but the short answer is yes, there was a difference. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think also, again, this highlights the fact that um, for many of, of retrospective studies, not only in radical trichelectomy, but also radical hysterectomy, often the open surgery group um, is often quite different than the minimally invasive group, as you mentioned, with regards to all of these factors. So something to keep in mind, and then again, highlighting the relevance of the propensity score matching. Um, so now, Rene, the, the, the main findings of, of the study, um, obviously the question is, was the recurrence rate and the disease-free survival between open and minimally invasive surgery different when performing radical trichelectomy? Okay, Pedro. At 4.5 years, 4.7% of patients with open surgery and 6.2% with minimally invasive surgery had recurrence. The p-value is 04 
and the 4.5 year disease free survival rates were 94.3% for open surgery and 91.5% for minimal invasive surgery. Again, with any statistically significant difference. Yeah, so overall in this study, there was no difference between recurrence rate and disease-free survival uh, for patients undergoing uh, radical trachelectomy uh, in the open versus minimally invasive surgery uh, group. But w one of the additional uh, points that will be often asked and and and, and you may not have the answer to this, but was there a difference when you compare laparoscopy versus robotic surgery? Yeah, we run a separate analysis on that and the recurrence rates were pretty similar between robotic surgery, nine of 167 patients for a 5.4% versus nine of 121 patients, 7.4% percent in laparoscopy arm, of course, without any statistically significant difference. Yeah. And again, it probably, uh, again, brings to the point a number of uh, cases that, you know, did you have enough uh, cases in both groups to see a difference? Um, so obviously that's something that uh, remains to be uh, to be seen. Um, now, Gloria, what were the factors that most impacted likelihood of recurrence for patients undergoing radical trachelectomy? Well, in the univariate analysis we, that we did, uh, the factors uh, associated with recurrence, uh, regardless right, of the surgical approach, were lack of cone biopsy, the preoperative visible lesion, the state being a 1B1 stage disease, having lymph vascular space invasion, and adenosquamous. Uh, histology. Uh, those were the most the factors associated with the higher likelihood of recurrence. Of recurrence, yeah. And then now this question comes from Emma Allison in Australia, and I'll direct this one to you now, Renee. Um, do you think she asked? Do you think the pathologic features of the minimally invasive group, so smaller tumor size? less number of patients with grade three disease, less number of patients with lymphovascular invasion, less death of invasion in the tumors should really lend themselves to a more favorable oncologic outcome. And the lack of difference is a result of the smaller number of recurrences more than any adjustment for confounders. Pedro, probably you're right. We should not forget that first, this is a multicentric retrospective trial with all the weaknesses associated with this kind of design. And second, and more important, the number of events were low in both surgical approaches. And this makes it very difficult to find differences, even if those differences were real. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think that particularly is a, is a factor when you get into these very low risk groups. And, and obviously, the, the lower the risk, the lower the, the, the events of, uh, of recurrences. So obviously, it's an important point to highlight. So, so this, this next question, obviously, also often a topic of uh, frequent discussions, uh, particularly as of late. Um, I'll direct this to Gloria, and actually this is a question asked by multiple of our fellows, um, and this was a, a point referring to prior colonization. 
Um, some will want to know about previous conversation and the impact of outcomes. Can you discuss what you found as it pertains to conversations and previous conversations in these patients? Yeah, thank you. Uh, as as Renia mentioned before, there was uh, a significant difference when compared to the number of patients having had a cone biopsy prior to the radical trachelectomy in both groups, right? It was 61% in the open and 80% in the minimal invasive, uh, around 8%. So we see, uh, we saw in the, in the analysis that the use of conization was associated with decreased recurrence rate, like it was 2.7% versus 11.5%. Um, and that was a factor that exhibited the largest difference in recurrence rate, actually. Um, and of course, one might speculate that performing a cone to reduce, I don't know, tumor burden prior to the surgery might be something protective or... Um, so to that end, we perform a breast load day test uh, that did not indicate any interaction effect with a p-value of 0.11. Uh, but of course, as we've been discussing uh, in previous questions, the study might have been underpowered to detect any difference. Um, However, recurrence by surgical type varied differentially when each conization of stratum was evaluated separately. And the OS ratio uh, 95-confident interval for recurrence among patients who did not have a cone was 3 um, and 0.9 for those uh, patients who did have a cone. So there was a difference in, in the odds of recurrence um, when comparing those that did versus those that did not have a cone for each group. Yeah, not sure if that answered the question. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I think it's also, I mean, I think that this brings uh, uh, light to the point of the fact that generally patients who have a cone typically are patients who had much smaller tumors. Therefore, the reason why they had the cone as opposed to a patient that shows up mm -hmm. with a with a grossly visible tumor that generally is not going to have a cone. So I think it's like by association, patients who have a cone do better, but it is generally because of the fact that those patients typically have microscopic tumors or much smaller tumors rather than the patients who didn't have a cone because they didn't have a cone because the tumor was a lot bigger and you didn't need to have a cone. So I think that that's, uh, it's important to, to highlight as well. Um, one question that uh, comes from Cecilia Darín in Argentina is in your minimally invasive group, the rate of readmission was almost 10% versus the open surgery group where the rate of readmission was 2%. So do you have any information as to why the patients who underwent minimally invasive surgery had a much higher readmission rate? Well, we after we saw these results, of course, we, we went back to the, to the site and requested additional information regarding uh, readmission, so uh, for both groups, uh, open and uh, minimally invasive, uh, just to make sure that patients were not like, were really and actually readmitted to the hospital and were not just seen in the, in the emergency room. But still, the, the results show a difference. And we cannot say what was the reason of the difference. I don't know if patients were follow-up differently or were... I don't know. For some reason, they were admitted more often, but rates of, uh, although we didn't, 
published rate of complications. We did uh, on the rate of reoperations, and that was similar uh, in both groups. For some reason that I cannot tell exactly what was it, but it was different. But I, I wouldn't put much, uh, you know, highlight into this because it might be, again, it is a retrospective study. Patients might have been uh, followed or, or managed differently when undergoing undergoing this newer approach in each site. So my, that might be the reason. Okay. Um, so now, Renee, I wanted to ask you on a point that we covered previously, uh, which was the point regarding follow-up. Uh, and of course, obviously, follow-up uh, in retrospective studies, as we have seen uh, in other series, also of radical hysterectomy, open surgery patients typically have longer follow-up because that's sequentially what the, 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 when the surgery was performed. Typically, it was open first and then minimally invasive surgery. So the next question is, follow-up time for the open group in this study was 5.5 years. And for the minimally invasive group, it was 3.1 years. So what impact do you think this might have had on your results? Pedro, this is a great question. Uh, those numbers only reflect, as you said, the history of the techniques. If we, if we would include vaginal procedures, certainly vaginal radial tracheotomy will have an even larger median follow-up time because it's been done since much, many more years. This was not a concern to us because the vast majority of relapses after surgical treatment of cervical cancer will occur in the first two years after the surgical procedure. Yeah, so, and I think, again, it's, uh, it's often... Um, what we see, I think, wouldn't you say, with regards to to these series where, uh, you know, many, many of the publications were sort of like immediately after there were enough patients to to uh, to report on, on these procedures. Um, yeah, you're right. So now you mentioned a study by uh, uh, Koji Matsuo and their group in the, um, in the uh, National Cancer Database in your discussion. Can you tell us a little bit more about that study, Rene? Yeah, of course. Uh, in this study, the authors performed a retrospective national cancer database analysis in order to examine trends, characteristics, and survival of reproductive age women with early stage cervical cancer who underwent minimally invasive trachelectomy. They included 246 patients with early stage cervical cancer who underwent either open radical trachelectomy, 102 patients, or minimal invasive radical trachelectomy, 144 patients. The authors found a four-year overall survival rate of 92.3% for open surgery and 95.7% for minimally invasive surgery. After a median follow-up times of 40 months for open surgery and 37 months for minimal invasive surgery, there were 11 deaths. This was 5.3%. Seven of them occurred in open surgery arm, corresponding to 7.6%, whereas there were four deaths, 3.5% in the minimally invasive approach. The p-value was not statistically significant. Importantly, in discussion sections, authors acknowledged that the effects of minimally invasive surgery on survival remain unknown as the oncologic outcome was not the primary endpoint of the study. 
Yeah, and, and I think it's important to to highlight, as you said, that um, that that was not the primary endpoint of that study because often that that study is uh, is quoted as reflecting um, adequate analysis of oncologic outcomes. So thank you for highlighting that. Um, now, Gloria, you um, you go on to provide a, a number of strengths and limitations of the IRTA study. Can you highlight those for the audience? Yeah, sure. Uh, so regarding the strength, let's start with those. Uh, this is the largest uh, sample size that was published so far comparing the open versus minimal invasive approach for this surgery, the radical trachectomy. So that for sure it's, it's a strength. Um, all the centers that were included in the study, they were performing radical trachectomy, but also radical hysterectomy before. So that talks about the proficiency in radical and complex pelvic surgery that each side uh, had. Uh, we had a data dictionary that was available um, for each variable that was included in order to minimize the, the, you know, the differences in interpretation that uh, it's, it's something uh, that you, you face when you're working with so many institutions uh, worldwide. And the database, as we mentioned at the beginning, uh, was monitored periodically. We have a fluent communication with uh, every site while they were entering the data and after the data was entered too, um, to find all missings, on incorrect values, you know, typo or whatever, things that didn't make sense. So that was, another strength. And as we mentioned before, we were requesting 10% of each uh, patient, uh, of the patients entered per site. We were requesting the source documents regarding of the language the, the documents were written. So those for sure are the strength that we, that this study have. And of course, as we were talking through the podcast, there are several limitations and definitely being a retrospective study it has to be kept in mind when reading this or any other study. Uh, being re the retrospective nature uh, made the study prone to several bias in patient selection, especially in the choice of the surgical approach. And this is something that when you read other retrospective or with a smaller sample size or whatever, or even reviews, uh, you face with this, where you read this um, uh, this bias in the in the decision to choose one approach over the other, and we we mentioned as a strength the the sample size uh, being the largest, but still the number of patients uh, might have been limited, considering that this the, the recurrence uh, in this patient population with low risk disease it's it's very low. Um, we, of course, as we mentioned, I mentioned the strength as well, that patient, that sites were proficient about uh, performing the surgery. So this study may not reflect the outcomes in low volume uh, centers. Um, we discussed that we didn't include uh, intraoperative or postoperative complications. This might appear in a, in a future, manuscript, maybe. 
And something that um, it is important too to mention is that maybe the comparisons between the open and the minimally invasive approach, because of as Rene mentioned, the time when each type of surgery uh, appeared and started to be published. So first we have the open, then the minimally invasive one. So that makes the comparison more of a sequential than a concurrent one. And in order to to deal with this, we perform like a sub-analysis, including uh, patients that had surgery in the, the, from 2012 to 2017, where most sites were doing both. Although of course, some sites continue to perform the open and some others move completely to the uh, minimally invasive group. So those uh, last six years of the study were more in a concurrent comparison. Um, so that those are definitely limitations. Uh, another limitation could be uh, that we, a, a comparison of recurrence uh, or oncologic outcomes among continents would have been a, a nice thing to do. But again, given the small frequencies of events, uh, that analysis was not feasible. But of course, keep in mind, and the most important thing to uh, have in mind when you're reading this is this is retrospective study. Yes, and and I think also uh, obviously again it's uh, it's what we have is the data that that mm -hmm. we have from um, the uh, retrospective uh, registry. But again, I think it's uh, to to highlight and to your point is it is the largest study looking at this uh, at this particular question. So um, so obviously credit to uh, to you both and then to to the rest of the institutions that participated. So now I just have a, a few additional questions, uh, Renee. I wanted to ask you. You know, of course, some might say, well, look, you know, you were part of the of the LAC trial and, and you were able to perform a prospective randomized trial and uh, radical hysterectomy. So um, given all the limitations that Gloria just mentioned, why not just perform a prospective randomized trial exploring open versus minimally invasive radical trachelectomy? Pedro, respectfully, I think this is not possible <laughs> uh, because there's several reasons. First... Uh, the number of events regarding oncological outcome is usually too low, which will require a very huge sample, difficult to get. Second, not all the surgeons are trained or prefer minimal invasive approaches, whereas others do not perform any more open surgeries, which would make impossible the randomization process. Third, those cases are not common in general gynecologic oncology practice. And four, and even more important, prospective evidence on the efficacy of surgeries less invasive than radical trachelectomy in tumors less than two centimeters recently started to appear. And probably the current indications we have for radical trachelectomy will disappear in the near future. Yeah, and then actually that, that brings me to the last question for Gloria, actually. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, you certainly uh, allude to this in your discussion, uh, the three prospective studies that conserve the shape and GOG 278. These are all studies um, evaluating conservative management in patients with early low risk cervical cancer. So what are the implications uh, of these studies on the management of early cervical cancer? And, and you know, how might those relate to the findings in this study? 
Yeah, as Remne mentioned, this result with, of course, shed light on uh, whether conservative surgery or less radical surgery is sufficient, maybe for patients with uh, low risk tumors, tumors up to two centimeter. These results are very much, we are really waiting them, right? Like uh, there's a lot of uh, excitement on, on reading those manuscripts or listening to those presentations uh, in the near future, because um, definitely, as Rene said, um, this, these results of prospective and randomized studies will maybe render radical trachelectomy even obsolete, like something that we won't be doing anymore as other options, less radical surgeries will be, will be enough. So let's see what happens. Yeah, and, and particularly again, uh, I invite everyone to to listen to the uh, podcast that we um, actually uh, performed with uh, Dr. Uh, Kathleen Schmaler on the results of the Conserve uh, trial that has also been published uh, here in the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. So um, yes, highly anticipated and and likely. Um, to change the standard of care for, for these patients. So I want to be uh, respectful of both of your time. So I'm going to ask Renee this last question. Then um, I often ask uh, those that I invite to the podcast to answer, what do we do with, with a patient that comes into to my office on Monday? Um, patient who is an ideal candidate for a radical trachelectomy. And the patient asks me, um, should I have it? by an open approach or should I have it by a minimally invasive approach? What should we tell those patients, Rene? And that's a, that's a tricky question. If the patient, after iconization with negative margin, has low risk criteria, basically those of conserve, which are tumors smaller than two centimeters, stromal infiltration less than 10 millimeters, and negative lipovascular involvement, I would offer her a sentinel node detection and or laparoscopic pelvic lymphadenectomy. If there are criteria for a radical trachelotomy, I will speak here about the lab trial findings with a prospective design, and of course, about IRTA findings with a retrospective design. If the patient chooses laparoscopic approach, I have no problem performing the procedure. Finally, if the patient asks me to choose, as often happens in Latin America, I would offer her an abdominal radical trachelectomy because I've performed many cases. The technique is reproducible and very similar to a open radical hysterectomy. The patient will be at home the next, the next surgery day. And last but not least, a pretty pragmatic reason is if I perform a surgery for fertility preservation, and the patient achieve a pregnancy, the route of delivery is always a cesarean section. And at least nowadays, C-section cannot be done by minimal invasive approach. So anyway, the patient will have a low transverse abdominal scar. Well, that that uh, is very <laughs> definitive, and uh, correct, and uh, and I, I I take it as certainly, obviously, uh, it's an it's an evolving uh, topic uh, of discussion, and, and and you know, as Gloria also mentioned, particularly with the results of the conserve trial, and then uh, you, Renee, mentioning that uh, perhaps you know certainly radical trachelectomy indications may be 
decreasing in the, in the future, given the, the anticipated results of the shape and GOG 278. So I do want to thank both of you for this really outstanding discussion. Um, I want to congratulate you and all of the uh, members of your group in the IRTA study uh, for the, the immense amount of work that it must have taken to uh, uh, submit all of this information, uh, capture this information and analyze it. Um, so certainly uh, congratulations to, to you both. And uh, once again, thank you for participating in this podcast. Thank you very yeah, much, thank Petra. Thank you. Thank you for having us.